You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got a couple podcasts I think you should uh, check out. The first one is called Stoner. It's hosted by my long-form co-host, Aaron Lammer. Uh, if you like Aaron's interviews on this show, he's doing the same great thing he does on this one over there. And uh, with some guests that you might find interesting, Ann Friedman was recently on the show, host of uh, Call Your Girlfriend, and uh, former long-form guest Matt Taibbi was on the show. He's got some great episodes coming up, too. Go check it out. Stoner for the full Aaron Lammer experience. Another show I think you should check out, it's called The Stoop, and it's hosted by Hanababa and Leela Day. I work with Leela, and uh, so that one's in the family too. But The Stoop is a podcast about stories from across the black diaspora. It sort of combines journalism and storytelling, and uh, I think you will enjoy it. Go check it out. It's called The Stoop. They just finished their uh, latest season recently. The last one, one more recommendation for you, uh, the Frontline Dispatch podcast, all kinds of incredible frontline journalism on that show, including most recently an audio version of a ProPublica story written by Joe Sexton that we posted on uh, Longform last week. It's an incredible story. Joe also has been on the Longform podcast. So there's uh, there are three things, three recommendations uh, for your listening pleasure. But for now, here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer, here with Evan Ratliff, hey. here with Max Linsky. Hey, you guys. Another week, another show. Repeat guest. I like that we've been doing the show long enough that uh, we can have someone back on the show and I haven't seen them for five years. <laughs> I mean, this is episode 321. <laughs> Thank you for listening this whole time. Um, this one is one I was excited to do. Uh, it isn't that often that I like read an article in print and I'm just like, I got to go talk to the person about this. Uh, um, interview is with Nick Schmidl. Um, he's been on the show before um, talking about uh, his reporting on uh, the character that became the lead in the movie American Sniper. And um, uh, he wrote that huge New Yorker story about the bin Laden raid. And he was um, kicked out of Pakistan. He, he was kicked out of Pakistan. Everyone go back and listen to that episode. But this time he's here to talk about one thing, primarily only, which is the race to send the first tourists to space. Uh, he's writing a book about it. He had a midstream New Yorker story about it, and he is uh, deep in the new space race. I like it. Yeah. Welcome back, Nick Schmidl. Um, did it make you, uh, did talking to him make you want to go to space? Definitely not. 
No, I mean, in, in fact, if I were to describe what I think the most fascinating uh, issue of like uh, space tourism is, is one of the first few like people who's going to get sent into space is going to be like a rich, famous person like Richard Branson. And there's like a non-negligible chance that person's going to go up in a big fireball. <laughs> like it's both like 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 self-driving cars. It feels close to happening yet. Every time they launch one of these, something catastrophic could go wrong. Aaron, if you wanted to launch something out in the world or out of this world. Nice. <laughs> wow. How would you do it? Evans had his Whoa. coffee today. <laughs> I do it with MailChimp. MailChimp makes it so easy to launch your newsletter uh, that uh, you don't even have to put in your credit card number, I don't think, uh, to get it up and running. You only pay once you get up to a certain number of subscribers. So start an email newsletter today. It will pay dividends in the future. Love that we've been doing the show for so long that uh, Nick Schmidl can come back after a long period of time and Evan can uh, deliver the segue for the first time. First time. Only took him 320 episodes. All right, here's Aaron with Nick Schmidl. Nick Schmidl, I am going to ask you, I don't know if you looked this up, how long has it been since we last talked? I think it's been about six years, five yep, years. Five and a half years. Doesn't seem like that long. I noticed this actually because I think when we last talked, the last story you had out was a story about Chris Kyle mm. and American Sniper was either just out or was about to come out. Now, Bradley Cooper starring in A Star is Born uh, a movie that I've seen uh, frequently referred to as only could have existed through the juice of American Sniper. <laughs> he, he needed the push to be able to do a <laughs> Star is Born remake. I don't know where I was going that with that other than it's different times now. And you've written um, a lot of features between now and then. Yeah. Well, what's your clip right now? How many stories a year are you doing? Uh, I've been doing about two to three stories a year. Um, but have been simultaneously in the background working on this long-term project about Virgin Galactic. And it will be now sort of doing that more or less full-time for the next uh, 18-ish months. Where in the Virgin Galactic story did you start writing about it? So I'll be honest. I mean, I, I don't think that I knew very much about Virgin Galactic at all until Halloween of 2014, which uh, ironically was not that long after we probably spoke last. Uh, and on that day, Virgin Galactic suffered a uh, catastrophic accident in the California desert, a little bit north of LA. And their spaceship that they call Spaceship Two crashed in the desert. And uh, one pilot safely sort of uh, uh, got himself out of the vehicle and the other pilot died. And that afternoon I remember talking to my parents and they reminded me that actually an old family friend of ours was uh, one of the pilots at Virgin Galactic and so once I knew that he had not been one of the ones that was directly involved or was flying the vehicle that day I reached out and began really working on the story from that day and that was November 1st of 2014. So I think a lot of writers don't want to take on projects like this because it's so uncertain where they're going, uh, where there will be a publishable place to jump off the train. When you started covering this story, did you think um, one New Yorker story, it'll be out in 2015 and I'm out? Or were you thinking this is a decade long project to follow something like this? I wasn't thinking decade long, but I was thinking 
we discussed very early on what would be a potential arc with such an open-ended structure ahead of us. And the idea from the beginning was that this had been, the, the accident was Virgin Galactic's fourth rocket-powered flight. And so in the aftermath of the crash, they needed to build another spaceship, return to the flight test program, and then ultimately get back to rocket-powered flights. And the idea was that I would sort of go out there and spend a lot of time with them during that phase and that the piece would end with their return to powered flight. I didn't think, and they didn't think that would be three and a half years after the crash. You know, there, there was just a series of program delays that got in the way. I mean, I think that initially we, I thought I would do this for a year and a half, two years and be doing other projects. So, uh, it took certainly longer than expected, but it also, when you look historically at other flight test programs, it's par for the course. I mean, these things always take longer and cost a lot more than people initially anticipated. So before this, a lot of your writing had uh, dealt with the U.S. military. And the space program is in this interesting place where it used to be something that the American government did, and now it's primarily something that billionaires do. How did you bring upon your uh, defense reporting to understand how to tell this story? Yeah, um, it's a great question. So in some ways, it was kind of a seamless transition because all of the test pilots at Virgin Galactic are former military test pilots. And my father is a uh, former fighter pilot, Marine Corps fighter pilot. So he's not a test pilot, but the the types that all of these guys are, this sort of uh, adventure-loving kind of you know, a very interesting relationship with risk, uh, kind of mindset was totally familiar. And so, and while I have no aviation background and, you know, I had gone flying with my dad and friends of his when I was a kid a few times, um, there was a very sharp learning curve, but I also at the time had an incredible resource a few blocks away to be able to go and say like, dad, can you describe to me this basket of words and this concept that was just described to me means nothing? Can you like, what is, what is trimming mean? What are sort of elephants and ailerons and all that kind of stuff? So, um, and a lot of the same issues were, the story was different, but the, the kind of interface was very much the same. Um, and, and the people that were working out in Mojave, uh, you know, it was a very, it's a very mission focused enterprise in the same way that when you talk to folks in the military, it's a very mission focused uh, operational mindset. Well, as opposed to some of the military objectives you've written about, I mean, you've written profiles of Michael Flynn, uh, you've written about the killing of Bin Laden, uh, we talked about Chris Kyle. In some ways, the mission of Virgin Galactic is more clearly achievable than any of the U.S. military's missions are right now. Um, The possibility that we're going to win in Afghanistan doesn't seem to be even something people are talking about anymore. Yet there's this clear identifiable goal, which is, I guess, commercial space travel, or at least one. When they say, like, we are going to achieve this, what? Are the, how close do they need to get to yeah. do it? So the internationally recognized boundary for space is uh, 100 kilometers, which is 62 miles. The Air Force awards astronaut wings, or has awarded astronaut wings, to pilots who exceed 50 miles. And so... Virgin Galactic is trying to sort of figure out right now like what their altitude is, but it's somewhere in that range. And so the idea for these flights is that they have this spaceship that is towed underneath of a large mothership. And the mothership will tow them up to about 45,000 feet, drop the spaceship. The spaceship lights a rocket, and then it enters a very sharp bank and goes up to this altitude. And so that's their goal. And they 
and it, this has been done before. In 2004, it was done with the first sort of iteration of this vehicle called Spaceship One. It was done three times just to prove the concept, and then that vehicle was retired. And, and after that, Richard Branson sort of contracted the same people who made Spaceship One to build him a bigger version of that with which he could uh, uh, carry tourists. So the idea is to be able to carry somewhere four to six uh, passengers in the back and go up to that altitude. You seem to um, find the story in the pilots, um, these former military test pilots who, in a way, have gotten a new lease on life because there happens to be this skill they have that's extremely specific that there's now a commercial application for. I- I'm interested in how you decided, I want to tell this story through the pilots, and knowing that the pilots were your orientation, how do you include the Richard Bransons and the Bezoses and the ethics of people who are the most powerful people in the world choosing this as their hobby pursuit. I mean, I guess in different generations, these would have been the people who were um, funding the expeditions to the new world. That's maybe the closest corollary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so as for sort of, I mean, I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of the operators. And so in the magazine story, it was very much told from the perspective of the pilots uh, and, and in particular one pilot, Mark Stuckey, um, you know, I had also kind of been trying and have a bunch of reporting that I'm sort of now uh, expanding and adapting into a book that's very that's told also from the perspective of the engineers, which is, you know, it's an incredible engineering story because this is, NASA has, I mean, this has been done at an orbital level, but no one has mastered suborbital flight. And so there are potential commercial applications down the road where if you can sort of master suborbital flight, you can also change the way we travel long distances via passenger airplanes, um, cover, you know, make international flights in half the time, et cetera. So, you know, I, there had been pieces about these, and there have even been recent books about, about the sort of the entrepreneurs and the billionaires behind this. Without their money and vision, these ventures aren't possible, but... Richard Branson, for instance, is not, he's not on the ground in Mojave on a day-to-day basis. He's not sort of making operational decisions. Those are, it's all being made by, by the guys that are there. I will say Elon Musk is very much sort of on the ground. I gather in SpaceX facilities, so it's a different management style, but it just became very clear when I was going back and forth to Mojave that Richard Branson is a part of the story because it's his money and his idea that's propelling this forward and ultimately sort of his reputation that will uh, sort of rise and fall in the success of this project. But it's the guys that are out there either strapping themselves into rocket ships or, uh, you know, sort of the engineers that are running the analysis that says, you know, we have enough thermal protection on the spaceship to be able to go to Mach 2 and not kill the pilots as they're sort of descending. So those those calculations, that sort of that risk calculation for me is just totally fascinating. You have these really dramatic scenes in the story where people are literally flying into space and could die at any moment and small human errors can and do um, make or break something like this. And then there are these long uninterrupted stretches where everyone's sitting in a hangar with a computer kind of reconsidering everything and taking on something like this as a narrative. You know, when we do the moon landing, we don't show the like um, seven years of like slide rules Mm -hmm. going around. Like, How do you dramatize the science of this all? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's a question that I'm wrestling with, trying to turn what is a sixteen thousand word magazine piece into a you know eighty five thousand word book. But I, on the plus side, is easier than going the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> I do think though that uh, 
if there are life and death stakes to the process, the process itself, whether it is sort of, you know, eking out the sort of millimeter measurements on a piece of equipment you're going to place in there or going through the debates about whether there's enough margin built into the engineering calculations, that stuff's fascinating. And, and also, I thought it was really critical in the piece to be able to describe how some of these engineering decisions were made in order to understand later in flight how they made or in some cases broke the vehicle. And so, but, but the question of where is too much, especially when you're in a piece for so long, you either need to put a lot of distance between you and the piece for, and go watch a bunch of movies and come back, uh, or you need just to have outside readers come and say, this is great, I love how sort of in the weeds it is, but maybe it's a little too in the weeds. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a minute to thank Scoggin for sponsoring this episode. Scoggin makes Danish-inspired watches and jewelry. You may have heard that the Danish are the happiest people on earth. There's a reason why they know how to focus on what's meaningful, being part of a community, making time for relationships, and living in the moment. Scoggin's minimalist design reflects a less-is-more philosophy that goes into every watch and piece of jewelry they make. They've got men's and women's watches, also smart watches. Uh, they sent us one of these smart watches. It does not look like a smart watch. It looks like a beautiful regular watch that you could uh, wear around and not feel like you're wearing a smart watch, which is what everyone wants from a smart watch. Beautiful, but versatile. So go to Scoggin.com and you get a special discount on your first purchase when you sign up for emails. Again, S-K-A-G-E-N.com. Thanks, Scoggin. Here I am back with Nick Schmidl. I remember when I talked to you last time, I kept saying, how do you know all these people in the military and why do they talk to you? And this is a pretty secretive world also. I mean, this is, we should not uh, mislead the listener. This is a competition between yeah. people. Like the reason people are trying to do it as fast is so they can beat the other team. And the yeah. reason billionaires are into it, in my own opinion, is because other billionaires are into it. Uh, it's like, what's the, uh, the sailing race? Like uh, uh, um, America's Cup. America's Cup. Yeah, there was like a regional, like fun sailboat race until like tech billionaires got into it, and now it's like new types of carbon fiber being yeah. developed for it. So, um, why do people talk to you about this? Like, what? How does a reporter like stick their foot into this world? Yeah. So, I will give Virgin Galactic a massive amount of credit for letting me in very shortly after this accident. I mean, emotions were incredibly raw. The spaceship, the first, they call it Serial 1, and right now they're flying Serial 2. Serial 1 of Spaceship 2 was it was, it was a bunch of pieces in a hangar. You know, it was just wreckage. There were, you know, they had brought in psychologists and pastors to talk to people who were having sort of doubts about themselves and about their sort of place in the company. And And so my appeal to them was that now is the time to let someone sort of tell your story properly, someone who knows, doesn't know the sort of aerospace world, but like is sensitive to the concerns and who uh, has done reporting on kind of sensitive national security issues. But I think that the calculation that Virgin Galactic made about letting me in to begin with was that there was, 
there had been a lot written about them that they did not think was accurate or captured what they were doing. And here was the chance, you know, the, some of the folks from the communication side had worked with the New Yorker in the past. They felt comfortable with the thoroughness and the rigor and the fact checking. And um, I think they just, they felt like there was a, a story to be told that hadn't been told. And so we started out very much, it was a very gradual process. You know, we kind of described it. I, my sort of pitch to them was, I'm not expecting to be sitting in on sort of sensitive meetings on day one. I don't expect to get in the rocket in the first week, but I do <laughs> expect a free ride. I, I like this. If this is all like a writer who really wants to go to them into space and it's all just a long, long con, like you have no intention of actually doing the book. You're like, and in the last scene of the book, I will get to go up in the rocket. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, yeah, but you, you, you are negotiating for, this is what I would like at the end, but I'm not expecting that at the beginning. Right. I, let's, you may not feel comfortable around with me. And if you don't, I'm not going to say, well, our agreement on day one is that I'd be allowed to sit on this. Like it's your company. And so, so that's the way we started. And gradually, 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 like I became a familiar face inside of the company, inside of the hangar. And I, I made it all told. 10 trips to Mojave and then met them once in uh, New Mexico at Spaceport America and then met the pilots once at the centrifuge in Pennsylvania. And there was a one point that I, three of those trips were in a really relatively condensed period of time. And uh, I was mistaken for an employee by a new employee who, who was like, you know, essentially asked sort of permission for me to step through. It was, you know, can I, can I go in there? And I was like, dude, I'm standing here with a pen and a notebook. <laughs> <laughs> and increasingly I was able just to sit in on meetings and, you know, Sit on a meetings that there are times when you're reporting when you think I probably like not that I shouldn't be here, but this is a special moment. This is not a sort of typical thing for me to be listening to a rocket company very candidly describe sort of, you know, whether they're succeeding or not and what are the benchmarks of success and, you know, watching sort of, you know, flare ups among personalities. And so uh, that's where we eventually got. But it, it took some time and it took some comfort on their end. I mean, there's a danger. I was just rereading your piece on Flynn. And I, I still uh, didn't see it coming when McChrystal was about to get fired. There's a danger to letting people openly into your orbit, not because necessarily you're going to say something. I don't think like McChrystal's comments were shocking, yeah. probably to anyone except Obama. Maybe yeah. Obama was shocked <laughs> by them. But just like people shooting the shit, you know, talking about things that um, maybe safety uh, regulators think that they should not be right. saying. Um, like what? What kind of details are you looking for in a situation like that? Where do you try to position yourself in, in 10 trips when you've spent that much time physically um, in an office? I'm not sure that I go out looking for anything besides uh, just wanting, essentially wanting more. Um, I mean, one of the challenges is that, and I had a, a tape recorder the whole time. Um, I use a live scribe. And so, you know, people would see this pen and, you know, the <laughs> pen's got the numbers and the sort of the blinking numbers. And at first there was, you know, there was a little bit of, is that thing on? And, and it was, you know, the assumption was it's always on. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, if you see me in the hangar, the pen is on. And so there's a lot of shorthand conversation that I would sit in on meetings and leave after 45 minutes and kind of think to myself, I'm not sure I can use any of that because nothing on page and transcript is going to mean anything to yeah, anyone. It's like all acronyms. It's all acronyms <laughs> or it's all just, you know, well, what if we change the right boom? Well, that would do this. That would do this. It's sort of, when you look at it, it doesn't mean anything. So then I would go back after the meeting would end and be able to then go back with them and have them explain 
throughout. So you can sort of capture the dialogue as it is, but be able to back up and explain to the reader what it is exactly they're talking about with that just sort of going dialogue, dialogue, dialogue. So, and increasingly it became a matter of in real time, I'd get there and sort of, you know, ask a handful of people, what are you doing today? What are you doing today? What are you doing today? Okay, what you're doing sounds the most interesting. Can I go with you for those few hours? And so I think- disappointing the person who <laughs> keeps reporting their schedule and you're like, um, and I'm with the other guy. <laughs> and well, there, there's, you know, I mean, everyone is so generous with their, no one, up in, there was only one episode in which there's I was- There's only there was one asshole at Virgin Galactic. <laughs> no, there was, no there was, there, everyone is extremely generous with their time. There's only one episode in which a door was shut and I was not allowed into a meeting. You know, but I was that told, meeting was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I was told, you know, Mike Moses, the, the president would say, like, I'm going to go talk sort of, you know, HR and budgets. Like, I can't yeah. have you in an HR meeting. I'd say, you sure? Like, I can turn the tape recorder off. I'd love just to hear. And he'd say, I just can't. It's, again, you know, confidentiality stuff. But otherwise, it was pretty open door. And so, you know, there are there are a lot of meetings that were on tape that I'm now going back and trying to figure out for the book, you know, where does this uh, stuff that didn't sort of sizzle in the test pilot centric version of the story, how does it fit into a broader story that captures the more holistic thing of what they're doing? So when uh, there was a huge wave of reporting about Iraq and Afghanistan, I couldn't help but compare it to the journalism that came out of Vietnam um, and I gravitate towards like how we cover them really defines what they are and, and the different approaches. So when you were looking at this, did you go back and look at how NASA was covered during the original Apollo missions? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I didn't. I mean, I went back. I certainly went back and reread the right stuff. And got, got to read the right stuff. And and the thing about it is that I had had this obsession. My Tom Wolf obsession was actually coincided with uh, moving to Pakistan. And we um, we had been in Pakistan for a couple of months. And I think that my wife maybe either brought Man in Full or got it there at an English language bookstore. And we were sort of de so desperate for like Americana that we both went into this serious Tom Wolf phase. I remember sort of traveling uh, by a train across India and just gobbling up I Am Charlotte Simmons. And so so I sort of tapped out on Tom Wolf though, and sort of got to a point in recent years where I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I was so in, like, it was, it's just a little bit too much. And I went back and reread the right stuff. And yes, all of the sort of ex excesses are there, but man, it is just, it's an incredible, incredible book. And so in some way, it was like minus all the punctuation, sort of what's he doing in between the lines or what is this section doing and all of that, that I went back and kind of tried to, what, what are the, what's the psychology of the pilots and what's the sociology of this community that I tried to get at? Do you consider when you're um, picking a topic like this, the existing, um, the preconceptions and the biases of the audience about doing things like going to space? There's one thing that seems to bring out strong uh, emotions in people before they've even heard what you want to tell them about. It's should we go to space? Should we dedicate resources on this earth to going to space? All of these very, very human things that seem to come to bear when we talk about uh, trying to leave this planet. How, how much do you think about that kind of stuff when you're writing? I don't think about it at all, really. In fact, as we were finishing the piece, I think it's right around the time that Trump announced Space Force, the whole Space Force. And I remember... Like, I've got my follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> You're still trying to get an in at Space Force now? That's the one nut you can't crack? <laughs> and, and, and I remember there, you know, there being some conversations with folks here at the magazine 
be prepared because, you know, there's going to be a natural reaction, an anti-space force, an anti-space reaction because Trump just announced Space Force. And I was like, wait a second, I've been working four years on this piece. <laughs> I'm not going to let Trump's Space Force announcement deep six my efforts here. Oh, I thought this was going to be a meeting where you were like, just to be clear, <laughs> Space Force is my beat. I don't want anyone else trying to get their elbow in on the Space Force story. Um, I mean, one of the things that I'm not clear on the Space Force realm, one of the things that appealed to me about what Virgin Galactic is doing versus what the other rocket companies are doing is that there is such a deeply human element to it. And, I mean, I, I am not inherently, or I'm not sort of instinctively attracted to space stories and, and wasn't. For me, this was all about the, the risk management in some ways and the adventurism of it and the, the human element. And so the Space Force... I've not yet been able to see where the human element comes in. Now, the minute that we find out that there are JSOC guys that are sort of riding rockets into space and then jumping off onto enemy satellites and, you know, strapping explosives or shooting lasers at enemy satellites, I'm in. <laughs> but, I, I also want to read that story. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I didn't yeah. think I wanted to read this story, honestly. I've always been kind of anti-space. Uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly where it comes from. Part of, I think, what got me back into space well, this article got me back into space, but um, to see someone people take on a project like this that's potentially beyond the grasp, like they could fail. Yeah. I think that there's a realistic belief, and I'm wondering what you think about this, that commercial touristic space travel might not work. Yeah, um, It's not the self-driving car. We're not almost there. Right. In fact, I was kind of shocked during a lot of your piece where it was like, yeah, and once we do this three or four more times, we'll be ready. I was like, a guy died like two times ago, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, you know, self-driving cars, you got to have millions of miles before it would ever be a consumer technology. They're going to put this out pretty raw if they put it out at all. And there's just something fascinating about taking on things this big. I guess the military is probably the closest corollary, but I can't think yeah. nakedly about the military as just a giant project. Yeah. The question of, I mean, it's a very realistic possibility that they could fail. It's a very, that all of these companies could fail, that they simply won't be able to achieve the level of certainty, the 99.99999% or whatever. I mean, I don't know how many sort of nines you have to go out on commercial passenger air travel to where the FAA is comfortable. But certainly with out of uh, four, seven powered flights and one that's crashed with one of the pilots having died, they're not even close. So... What is interesting, though, is that they will sort of get to a point here within the next, I mean, they're a matter of, I don't know, a half a dozen-ish flights from completing the flight test program, from as test pilots, expanding the envelope so the vehicle is fully tested. But like you said, you would then think maybe that they would sort of fly it, okay, let's take the next four years flying it every day without passengers to prove that we can do this. That is not... Um, you know, it's not in the cards. And yeah. now, separate from whatever Virgin Galactic's aspirations are, the FAA may say, okay, great, I'm glad you completed the flight test program, but we want to see X, Y, and Z before we give you a commercial space tourism license. And that remains to be seen. Is the reason they don't want to run it for four years is that it's too expensive to be going back and forth to space hundreds of times without people footing a million-dollar bill to do it? That is certainly part of it. It's, it's extraordinarily expensive. I mean, so I don't, I don't know how much each flight is estimated, but um, they thought they were going to be in space and be a commercial 
enterprise a long time ago. So every year that they aren't, uh, there are outside infusions of cash. There have been uh, you know, passengers, customers making reservations for $200,000, $250,000 a seat, but there's no other revenue coming in right now. So I think they are desperate to turn that corner. But you're right. What's the calculation of do we turn that corner? And if there's an accident again in the near future, does it absolutely sort of extinguish any chances of this working? There's some like poker game theory at play here where it's like, well, you make the most money if you get people to start paying for it, but you can like crap out and lose it all with one accident. And then you don't ever, I don't think you ever get a second chance. Yeah. I, I don't see someone coming back from a, like a live passenger death in, in one of these uh, yeah. things. Yeah. Um, and I think that they are all very much aware of that. And I think that's what's, um, it's affecting every business decision and perhaps every operational decision, which is that the margin for failure, even though failure, everyone understands that failure is a very real possibility, while they're operating under the sort of counter assumption that like we cannot afford to fail again. I don't have time to do all of the stories that we've you've done since the last time we talked. So of that five, five and a half year run, uh, what's the story you, you end up thinking back on the most? So in terms of impact, I think, I wrote a story in August of 2014 about a uh, man from Chicago who was uh, had been in prison for what I thought was you know wrongfully convicted for uh, a murder and Tyrone Tyrone Hood, Hood yeah. yeah and wrote a story about wrote a the piece came out in August and in the outgoing governor's final act in January of 2015, he granted Tyrone Hood a pardon. And Tyrone is now, you know, still working his way through the judicial system, trying to clear his record entirely. But when he granted the pardon, it was, you know, that was kind of a little bit of that sort of uh, purpose-driven kind of journalistic dream that you've now affected. You know, this wasn't affecting kind of a policy where it was going to affect thousands of people's access to clean water or something like that, which, you know, obviously has its own massive, massive, massive impact, but a single life sort of being taken out of jail was a pretty uh, rewarding moment. You were early on a wave. Well, it's a wave that goes back decades, but there's been a true crime boom, particularly I think in the podcast realm of journalists getting involved with often death row murder cases. Um, And it's exciting and it's also it seems like a fraught realm, particularly when one story becomes inexorably tied to a case, can affect the outcome of a case. In this case, you know, he gets the pardon. In other cases, um, I think journalists have probably written about people who are guilty. Um, what like what was the experience of tying your name and career so closely to a case like this? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that it actually sort of, it relates to some of the other stories that I'd done. I'm thinking of one involving an an Italian um, book forger and book thief. And it was sort of about how this incredibly wily and convincing Italian guy had conned the antiquarian book world and was making uh, fake Galileos and passing them off to the world's foremost Galileo experts. And I have stayed in touch with, his name is Marino Massimo DeCaro, and I've stayed in touch with DeCaro. We, uh, about two years ago, my wife and I were in Italy, and we, DeCaro was under house arrest in Verona up in the north. And I said, hey, you know, we're passing through. And he said, oh, you should definitely come to my house for lunch. 
And we, uh, so we went to his place for lunch and he'd put out this incredible spread and, you know, all incredible wines that sort of, to this day, I'm like, oh, I can never drink Prosecco unless it's that Prosecco at that table <laughs> that day. And there was also... Italy is a good country to be under in house arrest. Under it is. A, especially if you got lovely, some people who bring some food by, you're it, covered. It's a lovely situation. So uh, he, uh, but he, there was a priest there, a local priest, and there was a local government official who were both totally under Marino Massimo de Caro's sway. They were like convinced that like de Caro had been wronged and this, that, and the other. And even my wife, when we left that day, she was like, well, I don't know. Like, do you really? And I was like, I wrote 9,000 words about the guy. He's like, he's a t- delightful man. Yeah. But he's a con man. Like, yeah. this is his thing. And so uh, always looking at, you know, how the baseball, when like you're in the batter's box and how the baseball is spinning as it's coming at you. And what's the play here? And what's this person after? So when I started working on the Tyrone Hood story, there was a little bit of that. And there remained a little bit of that up until I don't think that I have ever said that I believe that Tyrone Hood is unquestionably innocent. Right. I've always said that the case against others is, I think, sufficiently convincing that Tyrone should at least sort of receive, his his appeal should receive a, a stronger hearing. And that was the sort of the way that was like, show all of the evidence that his lawyers have mounted for his innocence and leave it there. And so I was comfortable there. I was not comfortable saying Tyrone Hood is, there's no way Tyrone Hood had anything to do with this crime. And I, you know, he and I have talked about it. Like, I, I've never said, even in jail, I've like, I'm not going to, there's a line there. You only can know so much about so many things. And there are potentials that exist. And you wouldn't sort of libel the man by like saying what those potentials are. But like, I, I just don't know. Right. What I know is that, the father of the individual who was killed had taken out a life insurance policy on his son shortly before his son was killed. The father had taken out a life insurance policy on an ex-wife shortly before she was killed. The father, right. you know, the family members of the father were involved in a series of untimely deaths involving insurance policies that I thought, okay, so, so Tyrone's claimed that someone else should take a look at this guy. I thought merited a second look. So, well, um, the thing we've re- I've realized about these true crime cases is very rarely does the reporter say, I think this person was innocent. In fact, I, I don't know how exactly you would land at that point. Yeah. But um, when you put them in the world, uh, whether it's the first season of Serial, the documentary The Staircase. Mm. Um, have you seen that? No. Oh, Nick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You had a long trade ride. <laughs> I think they got Wi-Fi out there. Um, no matter what, like when you put them in the world, people are going to form their own opinions. And some of those people are going to be well-organized, um, potentially lobby the legal system. Those people may even be the governor of a state. I mean, yeah. I'm assuming that the governor who pardoned Tyrone Hood read your article. Yeah, definitely. What have they- been- I reached out to his office the day he was pardoned, and then actually uh, the governor came and uh, spoke at the New Yorker Festival, I think that following October. And his person said at the time of the hearing, and then he reiterated at the time of the, when we interviewed, when I spoke to him on stage, that like the article was critical to his decision. So, yeah, I mean, that's both empowering and a little nerve wracking. Yeah. What would you say to someone who was embarking on a similar journey as a reporter? What are the minefields that you encounter when you start writing about someone who maybe shouldn't be in jail and is? Thinking through all the all the sort of counter what ifs that his lawyers are advancing 
and flagging them and making clear. I mean, I, I even remember meeting with Tyrone's lawyer for lunch. In fact, we met for lunch at the restaurant that uh, Ted Cruz was just chased out of in Washington. Um, but is there, uh, a, is there a restaurant in, in Alexandria where there has <laughs> not been a shaming incident? <laughs> um, so, but I remember, I think that she left that meeting thinking, I could just sort of tell by looking her eyes that she left that meeting thinking, I'm not sure this is the person who we want to sort of, I'm not sure this is the person that we want to write this story. It sounds like is he da- made. Is David Ground available? <laughs> <laughs> we, well, just because I think that she could sense the skepticism yeah. in my voice. And so I think coming in with a very healthy dose of skepticism is essential. And when you've read the entire case file on all sides and you feel like you're as much of an expert on the case as anyone, and you're trying to interview the people who were involved potentially in this individual's wrongful conviction, and they either won't talk or will sort of offer clunky responses about whether they uh, did or didn't rough him up or did or didn't sort of hear him say X, Y, or Z, um, you then begin to sort of come to your own conclusions independently of what those legal filings say. They're, of course, influencing you. If a legal filing is written in a convincing, compelling way, it influences your original premises about the case. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I think in the end you you, you get there on your own. I don't have a good segue here. <laughs> but um, one of my favorite stories you wrote is about TMZ. Yeah. And I think if I look at all the other stories, like they'll have companions and siblings, <laughs> and then there's, like, TMZ. So... Why did you want to write about TMZ? So there have been a couple pieces that I've done that have easily bled over the one-year mark. Spaceship Story was one. Another one was about an incredibly elaborate Saudi bank fraud. And there was a litigious Saudi billionaire, Kuwaiti, Kuwaiti-born billionaire, who was implicated in the fraud. And this is actually a classic case of getting back to what you were saying a second ago. There, you know, you know, There's one set of attorneys putting 100% of the blame on the litigious billionaire and his attorneys raising questions about it was super complicated but to make a long story short it was an incredibly stressful incredibly time intensive incredibly technical far more technical than spaceship stuff trying to get into banking schemes and at one point i was talking to uh, my editor daniel zaleski about this and he suggested he suggested tmz i think if i recall the conversation as a little bit of a go to la and do this fun story. Do and- a little blow. <laughs> hang out with Harvey Levin. <laughs> it was more of, you know, just yeah. sort of do what you do, but do it, you know, kind of investigate TMZ as if yeah. you were, you know, you were investigating a bank fraud. I mean, I hadn't actually thought of this, but TMZ is an intelligence agency of right. a kind, and it trades in secrets, um, and it has an economy uh, for those secrets. It's probably not that different than certain military no. intelligence contractors the way they operate and also what they also do is they withhold information for better information yeah. right so that 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 was the, the the paradigm was tmz as an intelligence agency go right? yeah and the national Enquirer has really been in the news this year for similar tactics i mean some of these catch and what, kill catch and kill yeah. you know trading up the ladder these kinds of techniques are like changing American politics right now. Absolutely. So a little bit, it was kind of, it was figure out how TMZ gets its stuff. And it could not have worked out better because I started on that right around the same time that I started on the Virgin Galactic story. So I would go to LA for five or six days and spend three days in sort of, you know, Beverly Hills oh, doing yeah. TMZ stuff and then spend three days in the desert doing rocket ship that's stuff. A, that's a nice drive too. <laughs> it is a nice like drive. Barstow yeah, over there. It's lovely. And yeah. it, uh, 
it also kept the brain fresh because it was like there was one side reserved for TMZ and one side reserved for sort of humans trying to transcend science. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that, you know, it was a really fun project. And in the end, you know, we received lots of emails, lots of inside sources as describing sort of how their investigations and stories came together. It was that was really, really, really fun piece. When you're in the TMZ newsroom and. I, am, I had no access to that. No, I, okay, no, I, okay. So I so tried. No access. I, that, well, that was the other thing is that this was for me also a reflection of sort of where the two companies were. Is that Virgin Galactic had opened his doors and said, "Come in, see whatever you want," and TMZ yeah. was blocking that at every instance and sort of you know. And the other, I mean, what was a little bit also like trying to report on the FBI or on other government agencies is that I would talk to either current or former TMZers, some of whom I thought were comfortable talking and then it was getting back to sort of you know harvey levin and others and i thought i can't really trust anybody like whether they're formers or currents or whether they say that they're you know going to talk to me because they've got an axe to grind like it was like i couldn't tell anything as to why anybody was talking about anything this is is what i thought it would be like reporting in washington about (laughs) national security that the minute you start triangulating anyone's information one person talks you can trace the whole paper trail back. And it sounds like you found the actual like people who could really keep the secrets in TMC. So knowing that not only could you not get in the newsroom, but that anyone who became a source was getting burnt as a source by being a source, what was your in there for stuff that they didn't want to reveal? Ultimately, well, I mean, there are a few things. It, it is incredible, and, and Ronan has written about this, Ronan Farrow has written about this a little bit, uh, but the power of an NDA, for some reason, I don't know why. I mean, I know why because of the legal and financial repercussions. But for some reason, it seems that an NDA sometimes is more restrict or perceived as being more restrictive than a sort of secrecy contract that a government employee has, like a classified. I, I was thinking about that when I was reading too. I was like, it's weird. Like people like leak classified stuff, but they like an NDA is like it. It like follows you further than classification. There, there there's no be... you can't un NDA something, can you? Um, can you like dissolve an NDA? Uh, well, you, well <laughs> I think the only way to dissolve it is to ignore it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so oftentimes you don't necessarily want news to break about your reporting process before you're ready to break the news. And in this case, though, I think the Hollywood Reporter wrote a story about nine months after I'd been reporting that I was doing this piece and it was going to come out soon. And, you know, the TMZ was scared. And I don't think the TMZ was necessarily super scared at that point. But what it did is that and I was terrified. I was like, oh, you know, I remember the next day calling uh, Daniel Zaleski and just kind of saying, like, what does this mean? Is this going to, like, you know, is the project going to sort of implode at this point? And what it did is it sort of shook the tree for me a little bit. And people reached out, and I was able to set up sort of confidential communication channels with several people, and some of them sent loads and loads of documents that I was able to then use to start piecing together bits of kind of tradecraft they were using. Is that common in your reporting that, you know, your email is on the New Yorker website, I think. Someone hears he's doing a story, they just find you and start spilling information? Not a lot. I mean, I wish it happened more. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think that there's, there's a presumption that you want to keep what you're doing as quiet as possible. Yeah. Um, but you know the New York, some of the guys from the New York Times, National Security, maybe Mike Schmidt has talked about this. That you know, like writing stories, or maybe it was Woodward talking in a recent interview that 
you know, stories beget more stories. Yeah. And so if you're breaking pieces, then potential sources see your name and think, okay, this guy is doing good work. I'll contact him. If no one knows that you're doing a TMZ story because you're so discreet about it, no one knows. It's, it's sort of as hard to get the word out. Or they only know through whispers. There's no sort of stamp that he's definitely doing this, which is what that Hollywood Reporter piece uh, did for me. Well, it's you brought up uh, Ronan Farrow, and I feel like the entire wave of his reporting and the reporting in the New York Times uh, about, I guess, about the Me Too movement now, but originally about a bunch of, uh, you know, specific men in power that couldn't have been one story like it had to be a rolling set of stories the uh the the flag had to be planted so that um the other stories could come out i do wonder if that will change how people regard these kind of investigations instead of wait 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 sort of dump 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 yeah well i mean if you you know, so after Ronan and Jane Mayer wrote the stories about uh, the Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, and then, you know, they've now sort of teamed up on a number of stories involved in Kavanaugh recently. And I think that, you know, when victims or potential sources continue to see solid pieces of journalism, it's a great it's a great calling card. And uh, but if you're not doing beat reporting, and we don't really do beat reporting here that often at the New Yorker, and so it it does create a little bit of a you know how do you sort of how do you I often want to do something totally different from the last project just to learn something new. And, but there is a counter logic that if you stay in the same field, you're going to sort of expand and deepen your sourcing. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. One story you wrote that really stuck with me was about uh, the journey of a single migrant. Where where, was that originating from Syria? Yeah, exactly. Um, And that came out at a time when every publication that had enough money to work on that story was working on that story like i could have drawn a chart of okay here here's the new york times doing this story yeah. new yorkers doing the story atlanta's doing the story when you're in a situation like that where you're one of a pack um does that change how you do your job do you want to do something different than other people i think this also applies to a lot of the military stuff you've done where these aren't stories that it's like i got a hot tip no one knows about this yeah. I think with that story, it, there was a sense that uh, no one, people had, reporters were meeting migrants when they arrived uh, in, in, on Greek islands and sort of saying, how did you get here? Yeah. But I was not aware of, while I was reporting or even sort of shortly after the piece came out, maybe things have come out since, of, of someone who'd been able to really kind of piece together the plight all the way to the arrival of safety and sanctuary. And so... There was a tremendous amount of hustle knowing that this everyone else was working on this. And that was a complicated thing. I had I had earned Gaith's trust, uh, this young man, on a trip. I'm trying to think how. Maybe someone from the NGO world had put me in touch with some Syrians who were helping people to get out of Syria. They put me in touch with Gaith. Gaith and I were, were WhatsApping. And <laughs> he was sending uh, Arabic messages to me. I was running them through Google Translate. <laughs> I was then writing back to him. He was running through Google Translate. It was a really, really, really fraught style. And I said, I'm going to actually be in Sweden for something else. Let's meet. So we ended up meeting. And he said, I'm gonna ha- I'll have a translator who speaks great English who, who can help us. And we met in, in, uh, in Gothenburg where he was uh, staying. And he ostensibly, he brought someone who was ostensibly an English speaker who didn't really speak any English. So we just sort of spent three or four hours together miming our way through the day. And at the end, I thought, oh, I so wanted to come back with like six hours, like to have three or four hours of tape that I could begin writing. And, and I really didn't have anything except a 
hey, can we talk on the phone tomorrow or something? And but hanging out with him and just, you know, I think that we went to the beach and barbecued and sort of, you know, smoked hookah with all of his Syrian friends. And then we, uh, I eventually found a translator and we would do three-way Skype calls every morning for like two or three hours and just day in and day in and it was like three weeks of doing that every morning. And then in the afternoon, I would go back and listen to the tape and transcribe and sort of raise a bunch of questions. And so I was, it was a really condensed, compact time period. I also didn't know how much longer. It was kind of like, I didn't know what Gates was going to be doing tomorrow. I wanted to get everything from him as much as possible. So there was a scramble on that. And there was, you know, again, knowing when someone is telling the truth, there was, there was a border crossing that he was particularly concerned about. And he had raised a concern about a particular border crossing because he wasn't sure if his residency status would be affected if he came into the EU um, illegally. And he had just sort of skipped a section. He'd like skipped like three countries. And I was like, wait a second, I don't understand how you got, I forget exactly what the crossing was. I don't understand how you got there. And he had said that essentially, what had happened is that he had said that he wasn't ever in Serbia. And at one point, though, one of his friends, I saw a picture of one of his friends that showed me just to show him like where they were sleeping in the woods and where they were staying. And there was a bridge in the background that I recognized as being a bridge in Belgrade. And I was like, Gaith, buddy, just like, <laughs> you got it, you know, you got it. You tell me what your concerns are, and then I can sort of, we can work through them. And you can explain to me, like, we can just, we can do this sort of collaboratively. But that was, you know, it was like, I thought that I sort of had his total trust. And it was a little bit of still working through that in the process. But that was another piece, like the Chicago piece we'd asked me earlier, that felt rewarding, sort of humanistic in its ambitions. And I thought that it was, you know, it also countered a lot of the uh, sort of hyperbolic, paranoid concerns about who these migrants were. I mean, here was a kid who was a, a law school grad and who had left his wife and family to try and make this journey. And so I thought being able to string that together in a single coherent narrative was a powerful way of being able to get that across. When I last talked to you, you had been doing this only a few years, I feel like, at least at the New Yorker level. Now you're a... Uh, a veteran you've uh, you've been doing it for a while um how does it feel like writing a story now that you have 15 20 features under your belt as opposed to when you were getting your first few off the ground i think there's a lot a lot more pressure that i've put on myself to make sure that the next one is better than the last one to make sure there are sourcing standards and expectations that I have for myself that I have now that I might not have had earlier. I'm, I'm putting even more priority on building really long-term relationships in which I trust an individual. I always try and convey that like, I trust you, but I don't trust your <laughs> recollection of events just because everyone's recollection is flawed. So like if there is a text or a photo you can show me that I can just then cross off that passage and that section for the fact checker, it'll make me feel better. So I feel like the pieces coming in are tighter in terms of sourcing, but story selection, I think becomes a lot more difficult. You want to do something that's, you want to do a different story. You want to do a more challenging story, but you also don't want to sort of put yourself in a box where you set out on a very challenging story uh, and find that you know what, you're either trying to solve an unsolved crime and you think that, you know, I'm going to be the one to solve it. And you're like, well, you know, the police have been working on this for 15 years. Like, you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, but I do think that, that 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 brings an added level of pressure. And it's also, there's it, been a little bit of an issue of trying to figure out how to be in Washington writing stories that feel sort of of the moment but aren't tied to the moment and 
sort of hostage to the daily news cycle. I got really lucky with the Flynn story in the yeah. sense that it was pretty much done by the time he resigned. But, uh, you know, it's a tough news cycle to be trying to sort of churn out thoughtful national security stories that sort of uh, aren't hostage to the moment, if you will. I, yeah, I was going to say, um, are you the only reporter living in Washington who has never written a Trump story? <laughs> um, um, I mean, the Flynn story is a Trump story, or it like terminates yeah. in Trump. I, I think I might have used the word Trump once in the Virgin Galactic story, but I'm not actually 100% sure. No, it's a good question. Uh, yeah, I don't think know, Space Force gets mentioned in the Virgin Galactic story. <laughs> I, know there was, I know there was a section about privatizing Trump's desire to privatize the International Space Station. But I'm not sure it actually made it through. I think it might have gotten cut. I think it was seen as extraneous. Uh, you know, we, I grew up in Northern Virginia and we, uh, my, I went to grad school in Washington and my wife and I have lived in Washington since 2002. And we, but neither of our jobs are, are sort of reliant on Washington, but we like living there. And it's a weird tension of, of, um, liking the proximity to the madness, but not necessarily having yeah. our professions tied to it or relying on it. So, uh, but yeah, as to whether I'm the only reporter in Washington who hasn't written a Trump story, potentially, I certainly have not written one, but maybe there are others. You referred earlier to like building up so much knowledge about a topic and then leaving it behind. And also this idea of, I want to do something new. I want to do something bigger, better than I've done before, which suggests you know a hard right turn in which you abandon all that stuff are some are any of these topics you're talking about like so complex that you need to write about them multiple times or invest because like i'm thinking like the new yorker doesn't let you spend five years on something and turn in one story about it right um yeah so do i think that i'll continue to write about space for sure i mean yeah. i think that it's at this point I'm not a technical person, but I can have a technical conversation about it. Do I think that I'll, you know, I wrote a piece about private sector entities hacking back on behalf of corporate clients back in the spring. Both of those are, have kind of been forbidding subjects because there's not a whole lot of human element involved. Yeah. But they're inevitably, they're inevitably going to sort of consume and occupy more of the news cycle. And there's going to, you know, I feel comfortable and fluent enough to have the conversation in both of those fields in a way that I didn't six months ago. So I'm sure I'll come back to them. But uh, but I think that was one of the, I mean one of the parts of the Virgin Galactic story is that you would have thought that after three and a half years you hand in the piece normally you sort of hand in a piece I hand in a piece and then it's you know oh my god I cannot wait to just close that Scrivener file yeah, and never yeah. open it up again oh you're a Scrivener person <laughs> I am shouts to Scrivener I'm also so, a Scrivener fan <laughs> here there was a you know I filed the piece clicked out of the sort of, you know, Virgin Galactic Scrivener file and then immediately opened up the Virgin Galactic Book Scrivener file yeah. <laughs> and, like, transferred everything to that. And, uh, you know, that story is not complete, and it felt like... But, yeah, I think that... I think some of these more technical subjects, uh, you know, I will sort of inevitably go back to, and I don't know in what capacity. I don't... There's not kind of an, an immediate lineup. But there's also, you know, I'm also kind of interested in coming back and seeing, like, how would I now write a true crime con man story in 2018 or 2019 differently than I would in 2012 or 13 when I was first starting here. And I think that's also a really sort of enticing challenge. Thank you so much for this interview. Uh, yeah. you want, you want to do it again in like five and a half to six years? <laughs> Deal. <laughs> what, 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 uh, as a gambling man, me and you talk in, uh, 2024 or 2025, 
What are the chances that people are going uh, up to space as tourists then? Definitely. Definitely. So I think that right now about 500 people have been to space. My guess is that by that point we'll have added a couple of hundred. So, okay. They're about to shoot up, like, not the first, but, like, in the first ten. And they're like, hey, Nick, we know you're working on the book. We think this would be a great seed for you to go up. You're going to be one of the first people. It's extremely dangerous, though. Do you go up? I would go up Yeah. on the next flight. No question about it. There, yeah. are, there are empty seats right now in the back of the spaceship that I know. I mean, there are empty seats. And I've already said to everyone at the company... Let me go. I'll yeah. sign a waiver <laughs> promising that I won't sort of hold the company responsible. Now, you know, my wife, when I told her that I told the company that, yeah, she sort of went white and she said, let's talk about these things before you make yeah. <laughs> But I, I, feel, I feel like it's the culmination of your, like, just staying quiet with the notepad. It's just <laughs> that eventually the rocket's going to take off while you're on the back <laughs> at some point. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I would, I would go um, tomorrow. Uh, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for listening to the Longform Podcast. This episode was edited by Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Tyler McCloskey. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. I'm, of course, Aaron Lammer. Our incredible sponsors are MailChimp and Pit Writers. Check them out. We'll see you next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.